Hi, I'm Michelle Hutchins, County Superintendent of Schools. In today's edition of Inside Education, I'll interview pediatricians and family practitioners about the COVID-19 vaccine, specifically the safety of this vaccine for children and adolescents. Once we get started, we'll be opening the lines to take calls from our listeners. If you have any specific questions regarding the safety of the COVID-19 vaccine and children for our panel today, please don't hesitate to call in at 895-2448. My guests for the hour today are pediatrician Dr. Jim Flaherty, family medicine physician Dr. Lynn Cohen, and family medicine physician, Dr. Charlie Hott. Could you each take a moment to introduce yourselves? Dr. Flaherty, why don't you start? Thank you, Michelle. Um, my name is Jim Flaherty. I trained in pediatrics and pediatric emergency medicine at Oakland Children's Hospital. And I spent the first 20 plus years of my career in Northern Arizona on the Navajo Nation and then moved here in 2005 and worked in the ER for a while and then settled in at Consolidated Tribal Health where I retired uh, in January of 2020. And um, I'm Lynn Cohen, I'm a family medicine physician. I've been practicing in Ukiah for the last 28 years. Currently, I'm helping out with the new Family Medicine Residency Program, um, specifically in community health issues. Um, just one element of disclosure about um, the past of myself and Dr. Hot is we did work in Africa for two years. And I have to say, one of the most heartbreaking things we had to do was stand by and watch children suffer and die from immunizable diseases. So I just had to get that out there so you know where I'm coming from. Thank you. Uh, I'm Charlie Hunt, and uh, my background is uh, 40 years in the ER, starting at LA County Hospital, and then um, 25 years in hospice uh, uh, with uh, here in Willis, and um, seven years as a county health director, and five in Southern Arizona, one here, and uh, again, we were county health directors in uh, Africa for a couple of years. Thank you. Dr. Flaherty, why do you trust the vaccine in general and for youth? Who you're on mute, Dr. Flaherty, let me. Um, the medical community and the scientific community has decades of experience with immunization with adults and kids, but more of it is with infants, children, and teens. And there's a broad array of vaccines out there for viruses and bacteria for the pediatric population. And the end result uh, is that in our country, as opposed to the example that Dr. Cohen gave, um, we have uh, reduced death and disabling disease dramatically in the United States for diseases that were common and um, that many children died from. In our careers, even in the United States, we've seen kids die uh, from those diseases up until about the mid-90s when broad vaccination became more available. 
So as a result of, of that experience, um, we also have um, the benefit of herd immunity. And that's why the more people we vaccinate, the more likely the, the community is protected. And that's why public health is pushing, pushing, pushing now to get everybody to get a COVID vaccine. Um, so um, the science of immunization marches on. And uh, in the past, most viral vaccines were um, called live and uh, inactivated or killed virus. This COVID vaccine is new because it's the messenger RNA virus, at least the ones that are available to kids 12 to 17. And um, the mechanism is slightly different. So it's being watched very carefully. It's, it's pretty clean science and it's a new way to approach immunization. And I know some people are worried about that, but um, I think that we're gonna see based on the uh, continued information we're getting about efficacy, which means it's effective in preventing disease and immunogenicity, meaning that when we measure antibodies, they're, uh, they're high levels that this is going to be a very effective vaccine um, with not very many serious side effects. Can you tell our listeners what it takes to get emergency FDA approval? Sure. Um, the, um, actually, I think that's not my question, but... Well, actually, yeah. it, it takes some initial studies. Um, this is Dr. And, and it's still, Yeah, and it's still a long process. You have to prove safety. Um, but in the initial studies, it's a very small number of, of patients in the, in the clinical trials. Um, and you make this uh, application that's not as involved as the, the long-term uh, full application, which is called a BLA, a Biologic License Authorization. So the EUA still has to demonstrate safety and efficacy. And I think we all saw this on the news um, as each company went to the FDA for their emergency use authorization. Some of them were turned down and some of them were delayed because of safety issues. So it's still a very um, well-watched process. Thank you. Okay, Dr. Hot, how do vaccines work in the body? Can you explain to us what an immune response is? and whether or not the vaccines have virus in them and whether we could get COVID from the vaccine. Okay, yeah, um, the, uh, uh, the way that this vaccine, these vaccines work, the, at least the, the Moderna and the Pfizer, uh, which are the ones that are being used the most, uh, it's an RNA vaccination, mRNA, which is messenger RNA. It is not a, uh, a DNA type of uh, uh, vaccine. Um, the vaccine, when it's injected, a, the, a strip of mRNA, uh, which is a genetic material, and is, it's uh, coated, and it enters a body cell and prompts the cell to build copies of spike proteins. These spike proteins are the bumps that protrude from the surface of the coronavirus particles. The body's immune system then learns to spot these spike proteins and produces antibodies that block the virus from entering the healthy cells in the future. The, uh, the mRNA eventually goes on to break down 
they still don't know, you know, how long it's going to be around. And so, uh, uh, whether it's six months, a year, or whatever, because we don't have the, the experience with it yet. Uh, but that's, uh, uh, and, uh, you know, do, there are no viruses, to answer the other questions, there are no viruses in any of the uh, vaccinations, uh, or certainly these two. And uh, people cannot get COVID from the vaccine because there's no true uh uh, COVID uh, in the inside the vaccine. Just it's it's a vaccine working on these spike proteins to keep those uh, to keep the COVID out of a healthy cell. Uh, another part that says here, if the kids feel crummy, isn't that an indicator of the vaccine is working? And uh, uh, w- looking through things, I couldn't find that, but I certainly have seen it where uh, the first vaccine. The, the person may have a sore arm or something, but on the second vaccine, uh, they may feel a little crummy. And uh, I, I'm not unhappy. That's what happened to me. I'm not unhappy that I felt a little crummy. Thank you. Okay, Dr. Hot, do any of the COVID-19 vaccines authorized for use in the United States shed or release any of their components? Uh, and that's where this is different. Uh, uh, the CDC says no. And so I just, you know, just, uh, I have to go by their research and what, uh, what they see in these different vaccines. Will the vaccine alter my child's DNA if given the vaccine? Again, this is an R- messenger RNA. It's not a DNA. It's a, this is a, uh, where the body will encode these things and uh, submit it into the cells of our body. And uh, so that's one where it's pretty easy to say uh, no DNA involved in this process. Um, The RNA goes on to eventually just being, again, downgrade, you know, uh, uh, it sort of breaks down and uh, uh, is reused by the body. You know, it says, as you know, amino acids, uh, are the, the mRNA is formed of uh, amino acids. Uh, but yeah, no, CDC says no. Okay. So then, Dr. Flaherty, how many kids have had the vaccine so far, nationally and locally, and are there common side effects? Sure. And, um, Lynn, thanks for bailing me out on question number one. I didn't realize that was at the bottom of my list, so I wasn't prepared to answer it. Um, so I was able to find good local data, but, um, the national data isn't very helpful. That's on the CDC website. Um, and that's because they've added the, uh, 12 to 17 group to the entire population. They've just moved the lower age bar down and lumped them in with the entire group. Now, I'm sure the data is available somewhere, but I looked on the CDC website and what I can tell you that I did find was that of the. 370 million Americans, um, so far 165 million have had at least one dose, and the 12 to 17-year-olds are in that 165 million group, but um, I don't can't tell you how many of that 165 are 12 to 17. Now, locally, the California Department of Public Health's data, um, as of 525, so pretty current, um, is that in our county, 3.8% of those immunized 
um, are 12 to 17 years old. Now, we can actually say with certainty that that 3.8% is uh, 3,100 doses, and since they've only received one dose, because I checked with public health and nobody's received two doses in that kid group, 3,100 individuals in the 12 to 17-year-old group have been immunized. Uh, but they might, they will need a second. Some Many of them will need their second dose, but... Um, so that's good news. That's um, good news. We're in a county yeah. with 12,000 K-12 students. So with that yeah. number, that's high. It's a high yeah. percentage. Yeah. And and so the other interesting bit of data that's a bit of an aside, though, is that, you know, our county, California has its own census, and our county's census in 2019 was 86,750, and we've given 81,000 doses of vaccine in our county. Now, again because some people have had one and some two. It doesn't mean 81,000 people are immunized, but it means we've given an extraordinarily um, high, do- high number of doses, and that's pretty darn good so far. In terms of the side effects, um, before I answer the question about um, this vaccine and side effects, there's a word about side effects that we docs that we say to people. Well, there's sort of three groups. There's allergic reactions, which are very, 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 very rare. I could keep saying very, very many times more. And then there's local reactions where the needle actually goes in your arm. And then there's systemic reactions, which are, you could think of as flu-like symptoms. And then people have one systemic reaction or two or three or four. And the more you have, the sicker you feel. Um, So right now, the information that's available is that the side effect profile for um, the messenger RNA COVID vaccine that people have received um, is comparable to the 18 to 26 year old group because they've bracketed all the studies by age group. So they don't wanna compare it to 85 year olds or 65 year olds. So they're comparing it to the closest age group and the the rates of side effects are the same. Um, Allergic reactions are incredibly low um, and um, the majority of the reactions are a combination of local and systemic. And the number is pretty surprising. It's 90%, and that's what it's in the 18 to 26-year-old group. But it doesn't distinguish in that overall number if you had just a local side effect or a local side effect with a systemic side effect with one symptom or two symptoms or three or four. It's all lumped together. I couldn't get it any clearer than that. So. Um, your son's uh, response was pretty typical. Okay. Yeah, I do want to share with the viewers or the listeners that my son is 12 and has been vaccinated. He felt fine after his first shot, and he's preparing for his second. Well, you are listening to Inside Education on KZYX. I, my guest today, I have three um, doctors with us today. We have doctor, we have pediatrician Dr. Jim Flaherty. We have family medicine physician Dr. Lynn Cohen and family medicine physician Dr. Charlie Hot. And we're discussing immuniz- the safety of immunization for COVID nineteen with children age eight, sorry, twelve to eighteen. So, with that, Dr. Hot. What are the risks of COVID-19 if children do not get vaccinated? What does a bad infection look like for young people? Uh, yes, uh, uh, regrettably, uh, uh, the young people uh, 
contract you know can uh, contract the uh, disease as well as uh, the adults and uh, fortunately their numbers are not as um, onerous as uh, the adults uh, right now in terms of children there have been uh, basically uh, 300 deaths um, and um, uh, there is a almost 4,000 cases of multi-system inflammation and this is this this can be a a problem that can go on for weeks or months and uh uh, uh in adults causes uh, uh sometimes uh, uh difficulty with you know with uh, uh long-term difficulty with breathing uh it can cause um uh, just a, you know just the uh it can affect the heart with uh, myocarditis uh and some of the kids have had this acute kidney injury um, and um, uh, this can happen well after the time that the child has been infected with the COVID uh, and these numbers are still continuing you know, are still uh, accumulating uh, the uh, one of the areas that's really important is that a lot of the children don't really show signs of the illness of the of the COVID and they can pass that on to their family, friends, uh, and other people. And that's, for me, a really big reason for wanting to immunize these children is so that they're not, you know, uh, exposing a grandparent, a loved grandparent, or anyone else uh, because they are really not symptomatic. Uh, so, uh, and the... Uh, Yeah, that's uh, uh, that's what I that's my concern about it is that uh, in truth the, the the big the big concern for me is the ability for these children to infect uh, their parents or their grandparents or their friends. So uh, uh, it, that's what I consider a uh, why I would like to have these children all vaccinated. As of note, uh, there are Stanford is vaccinating kids and other and other groups, other as much as being six months of age. So they are moving the bar, or the, the studies are, are going down to uh, uh, see how uh, how well the children take the vaccine at six months of age, and um, and what their side effects you know could be. And that's happening at Stanford. Stanford and other other hospitals that have you know, uh, that have be, become involved in this. There's going to be a it's a group of hospitals that are uh, you know looking at this very seriously because again uh, uh, the the children can carry the, the disease with little uh, uh, little exposure, but they certainly can cause, once they expose a an adult or a grand you know, a grandparent or uh, it could uh, you know, they. Uh, uh, the, the the grandparent can get sick, so uh, uh, that's where we are. But at least uh, uh, it's uh, it's six months. That's so common for other vaccines is that a lot of them they'll get them at six to nine months anyway. So, Dr. Cohen, is there any advice you would give to vaccinated people when talking with non-vaccinated people? How do you handle these conversations? Well, um, 
Unfortunately, I learned the hard way. Having just arrived back from Africa um, about 30 years ago, I was so upset when someone didn't want to vaccinate their kid, I, I let them know that and they never came back. Since then, I learned, um, number one, respect someone else's views. Uh, number two, try and understand why they choose not to be vaccinated. Um, it could be out of fear, you know, and it could be a fear that might be easy to address or difficult to address. Um, it could be for some other reasons. So my advice would be, number one, um, and this time you would have to explain why you're keeping your distance and wearing a mask to this unvaccinated person, um, that you didn't want to pass anything on and you don't want to be exposed to anything. I think it's important if someone is at increased risk or susceptibility, like they're undergoing chemotherapy or they have some other underlying condition, that you explain to the person that this is why you know, you chose to be vaccinated. Um, uh, number two, I think it's important to show some curiosity or concern as to why this person chose not to be vaccinated. And you might be able to help them by answering some questions or reassuring them from your own experience. But especially if this is a friend or a family member or someone who trusts you, um, that makes a big difference. If someone trusts someone else, I think they're more likely to listen and learn and perhaps have their fears allayed. Um, so I think it's important to really show that that concern and that compassion to, for someone else's views. Um, the other thing would be to explain to this person who's unvaccinated that most people get the vaccine um, one, to protect yourself, two, to protect your loved ones and friends, three, to protect your community. But in particular, for children, uh, why one may want to seriously consider getting a vaccine is to enable faster reopening of the schools, uh, promote socialization, which is so important in children, and to catch up with educational goals because obviously uh, we dropped quite far behind this past year without um, the usual school attendance. Yes. Um, you could also direct them to some resources. CDC.gov um, is very reliable. The Academy of Pediatrics has a website called healthychildren.org. Um, they refer you to some YouTube videos about your child's vaccine safety, um, the journey to emergency use authorization. There's another organization called mothertobaby.org um, that also answers a lot of questions, especially for um, new mothers. Great. Thank you. So, Dr. Hot, are there pre-existing conditions that make the vaccine unsafe in children? This is one that really, really surprised me uh, in a... Uh, uh, sort of a, a positive uh, fashion. Uh, and um, there's just a blurb that I found that I thought was really well done. And so I'm just going to read it to us, uh, read it to us. Um, there is, and here it is, this is from a pediatrician uh, that's associated with down in uh, 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 Southern California in uh, uh uh, a, uh, the Orange County uh, Children's uh, Hospital. Anyway, and here it is. There is no category of children or teenagers who shouldn't get the vaccine unless they have a known allergy to one of the vaccine's components. Because it isn't a live vaccine, which is a vaccine that used a weakened form of a germ to prompt the immune response, uh, 
people with weakened immune systems, either from illness or medication, may still receive the vaccine. There have been reports of allergic reactions to the vaccine, but these occurrences are very rare. Serious reactions is what we're talking about. Vaccine recipients are monitored for 15 minutes after receiving the injection in case of allergic reaction. Anyone with a history of severe allergic reaction to foods or medications uh, are monitored for 30 minutes. Uh, children and teens with other types of allergies beyond any vaccine component can feel safe receiving the vaccine. And uh, the only other thing that's in the uh, vaccine is uh, a, uh, a tiny amount of uh, polyethylene glycol. It's a 0.1% of the vaccine dose. That's it. And this is a substance that's found in like Miralax and other stuff that is consumed by uh, people. But uh, uh, I get that. Yeah. Uh, so, sorry. Okay. Uh, anyway, uh, so uh, uh, the. Uh, uh, you know, to me, uh, because these other vaccines could cause problems, you know, other vaccines that are with uh, altered uh, uh, bacteria or viruses uh, could cause problems, you know, can cause many more side effects than these uh, vaccines. So you're listening to Char Dr. Charlie Hot. Uh, this is KZYX with Inside Education. I'm Michelle Hutchins, your County Superintendent of Schools, and we are exploring vaccine safety of COVID-19 vaccine for children ages 12 to 18. Dr. Flaherty, oh no, excuse me, Dr. Cohen, I understand that all COVID-19 vaccines have emergency authorization from the Food and Drug Administration. When will they get regular authorization? Well, that's a really good question because so far it looks like none of them have applied for the full uh, license authorization. The emergency use just um, allowed them after some preliminary um, limited trials to get that emergency use authorization, but that then enables them to set up um, the phase trials. There's phase one, phase two, phase three. Um, phase one starts with a limited number of participants. Phase two goes into a lot more participants. And phase three is pretty widespread. Um, and, you know, before someone would apply for the full authorization, they want to make sure they have all the information possible um, to get that through and to get authorized. Obviously, they don't want to fail and have to go back to square one. So right now, I see it as being quite a ways away because everybody is still trying to gather information on this. Okay. Dr. Flaherty, both the COVID-19 and the annual flu vaccine were developed within one year. Why is emergency, why is one have emergency use and the other not? Well, um, Michelle, the simple answer is that immunizing against COVID, as Dr. Cohen said, is an emergency due to the pandemic and it legally requires the emergency use authorization from the FDA. Um, and, and so it can proceed at a much faster rate than the usual authorization. But immunizing against flu um, has been on, ongoing in our country and in North America for almost five decades. And we have data surveillance systems and uh, science, whole scientific groups all over the world that monitor 
the influenza strains and their mutations so that every year the influenza vaccine, what's going to go into it, say for this year, 2020, fall of 2020 to spring of 2021, um, was decided in March of 2020. And, um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a probability kind of approach, but it's usually pretty accurate. Sometimes it's not but it doesn't require emergency use authorization. But once in a while it does. If you remember back in 2009, uh, H1N1 emerged. It actually emerged in 2008. And um, we needed to um, have a vaccine against that because it was the predominant strain that was showing up in most places. So the vaccine was developed rapidly under an emergency use authorization. Thank you for that explanation. Sure. So I just want to reach out to our call to our um, listeners right now and let them know that we are taking calls. And if you have any questions for our panel, and our panel today is pediatrician Dr. Jim Flaherty, family medicine physician Dr. Lynn Cohen, and family medicine physician Dr. Charlie Hot. If you have any questions that you'd like to directly ask our panelists, please feel free to call the line. The number is eight nine five. Three, three, four, two, four, four, eight. Sorry, eight, nine, five, two, four, four, eight. Okay. Uh, Dr. Flaherty, how old should a child really be before being vaccinated? Okay. Um, you know, our experience in the practice of immunization, based on our knowledge of how the immune system works in infants, and children and mothers during pregnancy and breastfeeding shows that it's safe um, to even immunize newborns. We do that um, in the nursery. They get a hepatitis B vaccine. Um, so we've been doing this for a long time and over the decades added more and more vaccines. And the majority of the, the infant vaccines or the vaccines of childhood occur in the first year of life. Um, and the immune system of the infant is able to handle this. We've, we've shown it, um, both that it prevents disease, that's efficacy, and that um, they uh, develop the um, immuno, immunoglobulin titers, the response to the vaccines um, at levels um, when you give three, four, or five vaccines together that are the same or nearly the same as when you just do one at a time. And um, we really... Um, give a lot of vaccines in that first year of life, mainly because um, the assumption is, well, it's necessary because the, we're focusing on the diseases that those uh, infants get, but also that they're not gonna remember it. There are alternative schedules that um, parents come into clinic with and wanna spread it out over a longer period of time. And the downside of that is that um, uh, single doses or maybe one or two doses are given repeatedly over a longer period of time and into toddlerhood and preschool time. And so the uh, toddler or preschooler is afraid to come to the doctor for anything and screams as soon as they get to the front door. So um, this means that whether you give them individually or a bunch together, they are both effective. Dr. Flaherty, I'm going to interrupt you because we do have a call. Okay. So I'm going to answer the line. Hello, caller. You are on the air.
Hello, caller. All right, well, maybe they will call back. Okay, sorry, Dr. Flaherty. Sure. Well, I, I was finished. Um, the other thing, though, that's important to say is that um, these diseases that we target have a fatality rate. They can kill children, and um, not all children. And we don't know why some people's immune system is able to fight it through an illness that's usually pretty severe, but they come out okay in the end, and then some don't. Clearly, it is related to somebody's immune system that um, we're slowly getting more information about over time, but the person's nutritional status is also comes into play too. Oh, thank you. And if the person comes back online, I'm happy to answer the question when they're back. Yeah, hopefully the caller will call back. And again, we have a panel of doctors. If you have questions about the safety of the COVID-19 vaccine, please do call into the station at 895-2448. So, Dr. Cohen, do we know the long-term effects of the vaccine in children? No, uh, we do not know the long-term effects because the vaccine has only been um, given to children, even in trials, it's been less than a year. Our um, caller is calling but, back. So let me interrupt oh. you so we can take the call. Okay, sure. Hi, caller, you are on the air. Thank you. Um, I have to f take an airplane, a flight in a couple of weeks. How safe is that? What precautions should I be taking? I'm fully uh, immunized. Fully immunized against COVID. I am. Yeah. So um, I, I presume you're directing this question to me. Are you the same person who called back that we couldn't connect? Yes. Yes. Okay. So my answer is that um, the CDC has a wonderful travel advisory section and by country tells you what immunizations you need, many of which you already have, things like measles, uh, COVID, but there are country-specific and continent-specific diseases. Um, and actually, the experts on this um, would probably be our traveling doctors, Dr. Cohen and Dr. Hott, um, because they've gone back and forth um, to their um, place in Africa where they worked. Um, but I always advise people to go to the CDC website and check the travel advisory um, section, and you can pick the country you're going to and it gives you all the information you need about which vaccines are required or recommended. So, you know, what can I say? They're, they're, not, they're not as immunized as us. The place that you're traveling to? Yeah. Yeah. It's in the south. Gotcha. Any other I would recommend taking the same precautions we all took before vaccination, which was social distancing, uh, mask, frequent hand washing, and try and keep your distance as much as possible. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, caller. Okay, Dr. Cohen, I'm sorry to interrupt you. Um, let's get back to our question, which was about COVID vaccine safety with children ages 12 to 18. Yeah, so what I was saying was we, we really don't have enough um, time for us to really know what the long-term effects would be, but so far there's no real safety concerns. However, um, everybody's probably heard the recent reports about myocarditis 
in children um, in these last few weeks since it's been authorized. Now, what I could gather is that the number of cases of myocarditis in those that have been vaccinated are no more than the baseline number of cases in those before the vaccination or before COVID. Um, The other issue is, number one, we're paying more attention to these children after vaccination. So we may be bringing more of this uh, mild episodes of myocarditis to life um, because we are watching them much more closely. The other thing is my understanding is, um, and maybe Dr. Flaherty can um, say something to this, is that myocarditis has a higher frequency in the springtime where we are right now um, because of the different viruses that are around. So these cases of myocarditis so far have not indicated that it is directly related to the COVID vaccine. In terms of um, other long-term effects of the vaccine, like I say, we don't know, but what we do know is that there are long-term effects of getting COVID in children. And these are all related to the multi-system inflammatory syndrome, where you can get coronary artery disease, um, you can get pulmonary fibrosis, um, you can get developmental or cognitive abilities because of the inflammation in the brain, um, or from prolonged hospitalizations because of COVID. So we know the long-term effects of COVID. We don't know the long-term effects of the vaccine yet. And Lynn, I would like to add to your discussion about myocarditis, because I was looking at that this morning too, and uh, the two things you said I concur with. Myocarditis is a viral infection and inflammation of the heart muscle, and um, it can be mild, moderate, or severe. The kids who have it severely are in the intensive care unit, and even not in the setting of COVID, the intensive care staff is doing all sorts of testing to figure out which virus caused it. In the setting of COVID virus uh, vaccination, um, the CDC is assisting um, these hospitalized kids and their physicians taking care of them and doing every test possible to determine what virus is causing it or if it's related to the vaccine or not. And the key thing that Dr. Cohen said is true that, um, and this is my reading as well, that right now the incidence of um, myocarditis in the in the areas where these kids are having myocarditis is is not any higher than it usually is in the springtime when the viruses cause it are happening. So just want to update our listeners. I have a panel. This is Michelle Hutchins, your county superintendent of schools with Inside Education, and I have a panel of three doctors. We have a pediatrician, Dr. James Flaherty, and we have family and medical practitioner, Dr. Lynn Cohen and Dr. Charlie Hott. And we do have a caller coming in. So caller, caller, you are on the line. Myocarditis, the incidence of myocarditis right now have everything to do with the vaccination within exact 48 hours after the vaccination, after the first shot, these kids have problems. And so there is absolutely no doubt that the inflammation is being caused by the uh, vaccine. I have not heard that. Um, Where did you find that out? Uh, I have my site. that I uh, frequent. 
Could you name the site for us, please? Sure, Dr. Merkla. Trying to spell that? Caller, can you spell it for us, please? Sure. It's uh, M as in mother, E as in elephant, R as in rapid, C as in cat, O as in organ, L as in little, A as in arthritis. Trying to see if... um, if I can read, um, yeah. So there's absolutely no doubt that um, the incidents right now have everything to do with the vaccine. And that's what's troubling to the parents. So, caller, you have a response from Dr. Flaherty. After the first shot, it's not after the second one. Uh, it's this, yeah, I, I'm trying to see if I saved anything, but no. Let me say that, that a couple of things. One is that very few kids in the country have actually had two shots because the emergency authorization for Pfizer only came on May 10th. So, and there's three weeks between. So some have, but not very many have. Um, the other thing is that, so during vaccine trials, whether they're emergency authorization or not, there's a whole surveillance system set up. And uh, it's in the interest of everybody to find out what causes a side effect. And so far, the jury is not in on each any of these cases. There's nothing published. That What they have identified is that the rate of myocarditis is no different than before covid virus hit us and before the vaccine of children started but it it takes extensive testing and the results don't come in 48 hours to to figure out what causes myocarditis so from a scientific point of view the jury is not in yet on whether these cases of myocarditis are from the covid vaccine or from other viruses that circulate this time of year that are known to cause myocarditis uh, do either Dr. Hot or Dr. Cohen have a word about that? Well, I, I just have to agree that it's a little um, early to draw any conclusions. Um, number one, there's always doubt, even in science. Um, and so I think we have to wait and see because, yeah, the, the vaccine has only been approved for um, the last two weeks. So I, I think we have to wait and see um, what the data shows. And I will definitely take a look at this website and see what her sources are for information because um, the CDC and the Academy of Pediatrics and some of the other sites um, did not seem to have enough data yet to draw any conclusions. Great. We have another call coming in. Caller, you are on the air. Hi. I just wanted to add a little bit that uh, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, CDC, is investigating reports that some teenagers and young adults vaccinated against COVID may have experienced heart problems. Okay. The CDC's Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices uh, reports of... Uh, of myocarditis to date seem to occur predominantly in adolescents and young adults, mostly males, 
often following the second dose and typically within four days after vaccination. Most cases appear to be mild and follow-up is ongoing. Okay, thank you. Any yeah, comments from our thank panel? Thank you, caller. And in the investigations I did, which was in the American Academy of Pediatrics um, links, and it links to the CDC, and, and the last update that I looked at was um, May 21st, um, the jury wasn't in. So you, the CDC website, the section you're looking at may have more current information. Dr. Cohen, this next question is for you. Uh, what is likely the future of the COVID vaccine? Annual boosters like the flu shot? Do you believe it will become required for school attendance like other vaccines? Well, um, that looks like that younger kids possibly may um, begin getting authorized for vaccines later this year. And as Dr. Hott mentioned, Stanford is going down to as early as six months of age. Um, but again, you know, we want to make sure it's as safe that we know as much as possible and that is safe before we would do that. In terms of annual boosters, um, my guess, and again, I have not seen anybody really, um, well, there's no definitive uh, information yet, but because of these variants that are popping up very rapidly, you know, and all over the world, just like the flu, the flu variants change every year, which is why the flu vaccine changes every year. So my educated guess would be for now, the COVID vaccine is probably going to require an annual booster until they know more about the virus. Um, school attendance, well, that's up to each individual state. Um, California only very recently in the last couple years has made it required that everybody get a school vaccine without any anyone excused unless there is some clear medical reason to do so. Um, personal beliefs no longer um, are accepted in the state of California. So in terms of COVID, you know, I, I don't know. I don't think anybody knows yet what the state's gonna do. Okay, Dr. Cohen. <clears throat> First, let me update our, view, our listeners. This is Michelle Hutchins. You're listening to Inside Education. I have a panel of um, Dr. Flaherty, who's a pediatrician. I have Dr. Cohen and Dr. Hott, who are both family um, practitioners. So, Dr. Cohen, I heard that babies can get immunity to COVID-19 from their mothers if their mothers are vaccinated or had COVID. Is this true? And can you elaborate on that? Uh, yes, recent studies have shown that antibodies can pass to the fetus, um, which could help protect them, um, especially if the vaccination is in the third trimester, which is the last 12 months of a pregnancy. Um, however, what's not known is how long that protection would last. And maybe, Jim, you could speak to this too, but as an example, you know, measles antibodies um, last about a year in an infant, which is why the measles vaccine is given at a year because their immunity is down and that, that has moved up from, from past years. So the same with COVID, I think it's unknown how long that passive immunity would last in the, in the baby um, after birth. So um, there's also some other information that show that um, breast milk can contain some antibodies Again, how effective these antibodies are going to be, we don't know. Um, breastfed, they, they have done some studies that show there's less 
uh, respiratory symptoms if an infant does get COVID, you know, if their mother was vaccinated and is passing some antibodies. But what is known is that if there is an increased risk of severe illness during pregnancy if you get COVID, which can affect the fetus, um, you know, in terms of placental blood supply and the fevers. Um, so, um, in general, it sounds like it's safe to get immunized during pregnancy, um, and it does benefit the, the fetus. The other thing to keep in mind, too, is if mother is vaccinated, you know, that's a there's very close contact between mother and baby. We, we all know that, you know, there's face to face while you're feeding, whether it's breastfeeding or bottle feeding, changing diapers, just cuddling with your baby. There's a lot of very close contact. So if the mother is vaccinated, clearly that's going to help protect the baby, too by not being exposed. Thank you. So listeners, we are taking callers. Again, the number 895-2448. If you have any questions for our panel today, you're listening to Inside Education and we are taking calls if you have questions regarding the safety of the COVID-19 vaccine on children ages 12 to 18. So Dr. Um, Dr. Flaherty, is it safe to administer the COVID-19 vaccine when, uh, with other childhood vaccines? And do you support that practice? Um, I will answer that in one second. I want to answer uh, Dr. Cohen's or, or respond to Dr. Cohen's reference to MMR. Uh, my understanding on that, uh, Lynn, is not so much that it's less or more immunogenic at given 12 versus 15 months, but there's a whole campaign to be done by one as opposed to if, if a vaccine is given at 15, uh, rather than wait, just move it to one year, one year of age. So um, in, in answer to the question that you posed, uh, Michelle, um, is it safe to administer the COVID vaccine with other childhood vaccines and do I support this? My answer is yes and yes, or my answers are yes and yes, but um, I have a couple of qualifiers. Um, regarding the first one, is it safe to administer the COVID vaccine with other childhood vaccines? Um, that might be occurring in physicians' offices because kids, can, if the office has the vaccine, then you know kids have fallen behind on other vaccines during COVID, and, um, and they may be due simultaneously for ones they've fallen behind on or other ones by age. So um, that's a discussion that the parents are going to have with the pediatrician in the office on these vaccination campaigns that public health is doing and in various communities throughout the county, we're only giving COVID vaccines. So it's not an issue there. Um, there's limited data on this issue. It's being collected. That's what this whole issue of surveillance is about, whether it's for myocarditis or the, the issue of co-administering vaccines. Um, so the data is limited and we don't have a lot of it um, and we'll get more of it as time goes on and if it reveals a problem it will be publicized and addressed i, I believe that is true um, if parents have concern about it then the recommendation that i've seen is that they can get the covid vaccine separately and then wait 14 days to get the other vaccine the, the ones that are on their usual schedule um, regarding my second yes do i support that um, yeah, the reason I support this is because if you talk to uh, immunologists and allergists, and that's a subspecialty, th they say, and in fact, I was giving vaccines with Dr. Carlson yesterday uh, afternoon and evening, and 
we were talking about the fact that on a given day, our bodies are exposed to dozens, if not hundreds, of things that stimulate an immune response. Now, the immune response can be short, it can be long, it can be complex, but, you know, we inhale things that are foreign to our body, um, we uh, get them through our food and they go through our gut, um, they can come through our skin. Um, so there's all different ways. Uh, and immunization is something that stimulates our immune response. But the fact that the immune system is on constant watch all day long, every day, day and night, for all these antigens that are out there, whether we introduce them by needle or not, um, it, it's happening. And the immune system is capable of uh, processing a lot of things at once. So that's the rationale for my answer. Hello? Hello? You're on mute, Michelle. Hello, caller. You are on the air. Hi. I was curious about vaccinations down the pipeline with kids under 12 because I work in the school system. And, yeah, I don't know anything as far as potentials, what, what could be coming along and stuff like that. Go ahead, Dr. Flaherty. Um, yeah, so Dr. Hott already mentioned uh, uh, ongoing clinical trials. So these are the clinical trials that are being done in multiple centers on all age groups less than 12 right now. Um, and so those are the things that once they get the data out of them, they have to get a certain number of uh, patients enrolled in the study, get the data, and then they take that data forward to get the emergency youth authorization in that age group. So we'll be seeing it coming, but I can't tell you when. Thank you. Our last question for the panel is how would you help calm the fears of patients who are nervous to get vaccinated? Dr. Flaherty, you want to start? Sure. Um, well, I'll focus on the aspect of it when you're actually giving the shot because uh, we do that every day every time we give shots, right? There's two different aspects, I think. The, the fact of how you calm somebody down to get their shot delivered versus somebody who has a lot of questions like the ones we've been discussing today. Um, you know, we reassure people, we give them breathing exercises, we do things when we prep the injection site, like rub hard with the alcohol, flick the skin, um, and do things to distract them, uh, even squeezing the muscle hard so um, they don't feel the needle going in as much as they do if we didn't do all those things. So there's distraction techniques and breathing exercises. Dr. Cohen, do you have some advice? Um, I think those are very good methods for at the moment when someone's there to nervous about being vaccinated. Um, if they're nervous about getting the vaccine, I think back to what I mentioned about uh, talking to someone who is unvaccinated is, you know, reassuring them that, you know, there's been no safety concerns that have <clears throat> caused any, any problems. The alternative is to talk to the person about what we do know and that getting COVID we know has a lot of problems, a lot of, uh, you know, pretty high mortality and morbidity. Um, now, I hate that's not going to be very calming, but um, 
to make them feel better about getting the vaccine, it's like they're doing the right thing for themselves. And Dr. Ha, your advice? Well, I think they've covered it pretty well. Uh, and uh, uh, But it is right, giving it, it, there are techniques of giving a vaccination that are certainly less, uh, te- you know, less uh, traumatic and uh, listening to the patient, um, uh, to the you know to the parent and the patient uh, is very is very important. And developing the if you can develop the trust, uh, it's something that can be passed on through other other aspects, even besides uh, the COVID vaccination, but other vaccinations and and other health issues for for uh, de- dealing with children and their parents. Thank you. So the fact is, the medical community knows how to safely roll out a vaccine. They do extensive testing. If they see side effects that are unexpected, they immediately test to check how common they are and who exactly is at risk. Any risk from the vaccine is far smaller than the risk of getting COVID. And a big thank you today to my guests. This is Michelle Hutchins, County Superintendent of Schools with Inside Education, broadcasting from the MCOE Remote Studio. This has been a production of KZYX Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ Willitson Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM, Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. You can check out our website at kzyx.org to find more content like this, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thanks for listening.